I think this sermon series is so important because I think the most dangerous lies are ones you hear in church. This is the place where you're supposed to come to hear the truth. And so if there is something that is said in the church that's not true, um, it can be extremely damaging. And the interesting thing about the lie that we're going to look at today is it's actually not a lie that you hear in church. It's a lie that is kind of thrown at the church. It's a, a lie that comes from the outside towards the church. You know, I want to do a little thought experiment here at the start of the sermon. Play along with me if you would. I want you to imagine for a moment that one of you was invited into the decision room of the kingdom of darkness. And you were there with Satan and all of his demons, all of his minions. And they were planning how to unravel the human race and our world and to cause chaos amongst us. Um, And you had different suggestions being thrown out about how they were going to do this. How, were they, how they were going to tempt you. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters, oh, it's one of my favorite books. I'm getting some smiles around the room like you've read it. If you've never read Screwtape Letters, oh my gosh, move it straight to the top of your to-read list. Um, but yeah, so, so you're listening in on how they're going to tempt, how they're going to destroy uh, the kingdom of God. Uh, what do you think that their plan would be? Um, how many of you think... A good strategy that would work against you, a 2022 Fishers, Indiana, postmodern person. How many of you think it would be a good idea if they just started building satanic temples all over our city here? Would that be a good temptation against you? Uh, Not me either. I've never been enticed to go into one of those. Um, I don't know, maybe me and Matt should someday just for the heck of it, but um, not, a, not, a good, not a good strategy, um, but, but what if there was an, an aim from the enemy to get a society to lose trust in the church? What if the kingdom of darkness could convince an entire culture that the church was the problem. I wonder how effective that would be in unraveling the plan of God and the kingdom of God. Hmm. Look at what I've put on the the screen for us. If Satan can't get a people to doubt the goodness of God, his next aim will be to get a people to doubt the goodness of humanity. To lose all hope in people. You know, the only weapon that Satan has against us is lies. And so he throws these lies at us and we've got to filter this ammo from the enemy and decide, is this truth? Is this a lie? And the chief aim of the enemy is to get you to doubt the goodness of God. And we come into a sanctuary right like this and we sing, you are good, you are good, God is good. But if he can't get you to doubt that, he's going to get you to doubt humanity. 
He's going to get you to be cynical. And I am beginning to see all across our country a culture, especially amongst the younger generation, full of cynicism. Tim Keller says that a, a cynic is someone who's, who says everyone else's motives are wrong. Well, except for myself. My, my motives are right, but everyone else's motives are wrong. And here's the huge problem that that creates. A cynic trusts no one. And when there is no trust, there is no relationships. Where there is no trust, there is no community. If Satan can get us to look at everyone else with a wrong motive, the community that God seeks to build amongst us begins to deteriorate. What's so crazy is that when you and I flip on the TV in whatever news network you go to, they're going to they're interview a pastor. And it's a hot button issue. And what is the pastor going to say about subject A or subject B? And we're all sitting there waiting to hear the pastor. And have you ever noticed they never have like the Hebrew scholar come on and give his opinion? They don't. Like, like all of the scholars that I, I study from, I'm a nerd. Like I, I study theology and I go to these Hebrew scholars who know like Semitic languages and have studied Hebrew their whole life and are part of translation committees and these brilliant minds. Oh no, it's the crazy pastor who's flamboyant and who says crazy things that stir everybody up because it gets ratings. And the world watches the news and thinks that the church is crazy because that's the guy who represents all of us. But I've got news for you, Hamilton Hills. All around the country today, October 2, 2022, there are literally thousands of people traveling to Florida right now to help with disaster relief and their Christian organizations, their church organizations. I have a friend in Ukraine and I FaceTimed him a couple months ago and we spent an hour on the phone and he said to me, he, Scott, he said, Scott, there are hundreds of people going into Ukraine, but there are tens of thousands of people going out of Ukraine. And he said, every single person going in is humanitarian aid. And he says, it's all Christian organizations. He says, it's pastors, it's missionaries, and they are going into the most hostile environment to rescue and help and save. How many of you all saw that on the news? Not, not me. No, we're, we're going to talk about uh, this pastor and what he thinks about Joe Biden. And it, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's entertaining. But the truth is, guys, if, if, we don't, if we don't see what's going on, the enemy, his strategy is to get an entire generation to lose hope in not just the church, but to lose hope in humanity. So this brings us to our lie. And the lie that is thrown at the church is that the church just wants your money. Now, if we're honest, there are churches out there that just want your money. And the pastor is trying to build a brand 
And I mean, every post from the pastor is like a picture of himself preaching. And it's just like, that's his profile picture on Facebook. And I'm just like, all right, dude, calm down. So, so there's a legitimate, there's a legitimacy to this, okay, where there are churches who are guilty of the bottom line is numbers and money, but the reason that this is a lie is because this doesn't speak for the church as a whole, and here's the biggest reason why. Well, before I give you the biggest reason why, we have to talk about what the church is. The biggest, the biggest part of the lie that the church just wants your money is it totally fails to understand what the church is. And number two, we're going to ask the question, is our money ours? I think if we answer these two questions, we're actually going to look at this question differently. Uh, Matt, on Thursday, he's like, Scott, can you do the question, uh, the, the, the lie, the church just wants your money? And I'm thinking of things I can preach on and Sometimes I turn off the lights in my office and I light my candle. And uh, I love candles. Sorry, I, I hope that's not weird. Um, <laughs> probably is. Uh, and I, I lay on the ground in my office and I put my uh, noise-canceling headphones on and I put some sleep music on and I just lay there and I just think. And... I'm laying there on the floor on Friday morning and the Spirit of God is just pressing this thought down on me. The cynical world around us doesn't trust the church. And so I want to answer these questions. What is the church? And is our money ours? Now, the text that I want us to go to is the beginning of the church it's the launch of the church, and it's in the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, and it's to show us how the church got off the ground. And the church got off the ground right after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, to which Jesus is ascended to the throne room, seated at the throne on the right, at the right hand of the Father, where he's ruling as king just like all of our songs sing. I don't know who chose the songs, but they had to have been chosen before I turned in my notes. And it was all about the kingdom of God and Jesus' reign. I'm just over here like, holy crap, that was awesome. Um, all right, so you guys get the context. It's the, it's the launch of the church. And we're about to find out what things looked like during this early period. So I'm just gonna jump right into the story. I don't have a ton of time to like read the whole book. Uh, one, of, one of the things that I teach as a hermeneutics teacher, uh, I only said that word to impress you, um, but uh, I, uh, I teach biblical interpretation, and my first point is that these books were meant to be read all the way through, and we just don't have time to do that. Um, but go home and read Luke and Acts all the way through from start to finish, and you'll be glad that you did. So I'm just going to jump in on chapter 4, verse 23. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John, uh, they returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted up their voices together in prayer to God. 
O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, and now they're about to recite Psalm chapter 2. And Psalm 2 says, why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against Yahweh and against the Messiah. In fact, this happened here in this very city, Peter and John said. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, and the governor, uh, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus. Now, there's a whole lot there, and we could really preach an entire sermon from that verse. But Jesus is being attacked from all sides. He's being attacked from the Romans, who control the world at that time. He's being attacked from Greeks, who were the philosophical gurus of that time. And he's being attacked from, yes, the religious leaders of Israel, his own people. Um, Simply Jesus by N.T. Wright. You, You have to read that book. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. Isn't that interesting? God sends his son into the world knowing what would happen when he came. And it was the plan of God to rescue the world. And now, O oh Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Jesus has ascended to the throne room and the people of Jesus who are following him are receiving threats from the religious people and the political people of that day. And they are praying for boldness. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through your name, through the the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. So the Holy Spirit comes upon them and the Holy Spirit gives them this boldness and courage to say whatever needs to be said, no matter what it costs them. All the believers were united in heart and mind. How many of you, that sounds like cynicism? No. They were all united in heart and mind, and look at the next sentence. And they felt that what they owned was not their own. Hmm. They were all on the same page, if I was going to paraphrase this. They were all in agreement, and what they had was not their own. All of the blessings that God gave them, they're going to hold it with an open hand. Does anybody have a need? I, uh, hey, Christy, why don't we sell that cottage on the lake? They, they've got a need. This is exactly what's happening. There were no needy people among them. Going back to verse 33, and God's, uh, the, the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them. We're going to come back to that. That's a key word. God's blessing 
was upon them. So kind of highlight that word blessing in your mind and we'll come back to it. Verse 34, there were no needy people among them because those who own land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. Now, this is the launch of the church. And this is what the church looked like when all of those who were under the reign of King Jesus gathered together for the mission of God. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. All right, so let's start off by talking about this word church. Um, I'm convinced that there are so many words in this book that we don't understand. uh, Matt likes to call these words Christianese words. And sometimes we're reading the Bible, and guys, I'm, I'm right here with you, and I'm reading like glory and... Uh, righteousness and uh, sanctification and reconciliation and church. And it's like, I I know what that means. And then I'll go and study from uh, an actual Greek scholar who knows the language. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's not what that means at all. And it totally changes what I just read. So what do you say? Let's do it today, okay? Um, This word church doesn't mean what you think it means, unless you're in here and you're a Greek scholar or you've studied this before. Uh, Church, the Greek word is ekklesia, and newsflash to all of us, this is not a religious word. No, it's not a religious word at all. When Jesus said to his disciples, upon this rock, I will build my ekklesia, he uses a word that is not a religious word. This word means a politically a political assembly gathered to bring order and to create an agenda for the kingdom. The ecclesia was the group of people that gathered together to set the agenda for the kingdom. So why does Jesus use this word to talk about the people who are going to follow him? Hmm. Can everybody look at your neighbor and say, hmm. Hmm. The church was the political assembly of Jesus the King who had now ascended to the throne room in the heavenly realm where he, where his kingdom was inaugurated. And by reciting Psalm chapter 2, which Psalm chapter 2 is a messianic king where the father says to his son, ask of me, And I will give you the nations for your inheritance. If you will just ask for it, my chosen one, my anointed one, my son, the king. If you'll ask for it, I'll give you the whole world as your inheritance. And you will rule over everything. This is Psalm 2. And so right here in Acts chapter 4, the launch of the church, they quote Psalm 2 because they recognize that the Messiah had come and that now he is ruling. And we've got to see this. This collection of believers really believed that the Messiah had come, and now he is ruling as king. When the church begins to grasp kingdom theology, it puts the enemy on the defense because the citizens of heaven have realized their vocation their calling, their purpose. The sweet spot for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of darkness, excuse excuse me, the sweet spot is for them to get you to think that the church is 
a religious gathering or a social club or a self-help classroom. I just love that church because I go there and, and it just feels so good. If, if that's all we think about church, it's the four walls where we come and we sing a few songs and uh, I just love our pastor. He's so funny and, and like, man, it just, I leave and I just feel good. Like, I got to tell my friend about this church because I just get this good feeling when I go there. If that's me, the devil's got me. If all I think about church is that it's just a religious gathering, I'm under his, his grip. So to summarize, the church is the assembly of those who have entered the kingdom of God, who now participate in the agenda of Jesus' reign. How many of you, you say, Scott, the church means something differently to me now? Would anybody raise your hand on that? Yeah. Uh, this is the gathered group of people that are going to carry the agenda of our king forward in Fishers, Indiana. So let's, let's stop for a second and let's move to this conversation about money. The church just wants your money. The biggest part of this lie is that the word is the words your money. Boy, this this lie has spread not just in our churches but all across an American society where we watch Shark Tank and Shark Tank says self-made millionaires. This idea that everything that I have is because of me and my hard work. And it never crosses our mind that we had people in our lives that taught us to work hard. Did you know that 90% of who you are and what you have has nothing to do with you? Where you were born, the country you were born in, your gender, your height, your skin color, your hair color, your eye color, Oh, your personality, that wit that just enables you to close that deal is not yours. It was given to you. But yet, we so often, and I include myself in this we, think that we are responsible for everything we have. And because of that, we like to really hold on to it. But notice that these People in the early church, it says that what they had was not their own. And I want you to notice super carefully, pay attention to this sentence they're going to put on the screen. Look down at the last line. God's great blessing was upon them all. All right, I want to take two minutes and nerd out a little bit. Can we do that? Okay, this word blessing... Um, it should jog our mind and bring us back to the start of the Bible. That's what the author's trying to do here. But oftentimes as we're reading our English Bibles, we don't catch or get this. But the author of Acts wants us to see the word blessing, and he wants us to see a theme that runs through the Bible of God blessing humanity. So let's go back to the start of the Bible, and let's just take a look at this real quick. 
God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, what do you think it means to be fruitful and multiply? It means to have a lot of uh, babies. Not, we'll stay PG on this one. Um, it means to have a lot of kids, okay? And look at the last line. Fill the earth and govern it. What are they going to fill the earth with? Kids. Yeah, they're going to fill the earth with kids and they're going to govern it. What's it? Well, what did God put humans in? A garden, right? He puts them in a garden and then he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the, fill the earth. Okay, so let's just use some basic logic here. If people are filling the earth, but God starts off by putting them in a garden, what also will fill the earth besides people? The garden, yeah. Uh, theologians call this global, the global Eden. Uh, Eden was supposed to fill the earth, and what is a garden? It's a place of abundance. How many of you have lungs? Yeah, how do you breathe? Air. Where does air come from? Plants. Uh, what is it called? Like photosynthesis? I, I, I never did good on that part of school. Photosynthesis, yeah. Uh, we need air to breathe. Air comes from plants. Uh, we have stomachs which need food. Where does food come from? Plants. So I'm going to care for the plants and the plants are going to care for me. And I'm going to, and, and through this governing of the garden, the garden is going to expand and fill the earth with image bearers of God that bring glory to him. Okay, done with geek time, but that was your theology on the book of Genesis chapter, chapter, Genesis chapter one. God's intention was for Eden to cover the whole earth. What do you think? Is that pretty cool? So humans were to be the Salem of God, the image of God. This word Salem is the idea of an idol or a statue. I lived for five years in Thailand, and there are statues of Buddha everywhere, in every house, hanging over every uh, mirror in cars, to, on the side of little scooters and motorcycles, there's little Lord Buddhas. Why? Because the idol is thought to have the personification or the embodiment of that deity. Wherever there's a little idol, there's all of that deity's glory. But God told the Israelites, don't create images or idols of me. Why? Because he had already done it. When humans are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, there is nowhere on the earth where there is not a representative of Yahweh. Next, humans were to care for creation. Uh, this word rule uh, doesn't mean whipping someone till they do what you tell them to do. It means to care for. They're going to care for the creation project. And number three, as I said earlier, they were to expand Eden to fill the earth. 
Can you guys imagine a world full of humans who perfectly imaged Yahweh? Whew, it would be a, it'd be a pretty awesome place. And um, Hamilton Hills, I've got good news for you. That's where we're headed. Look at this quote from Tim Mackey. We are headed towards a new creation where there will be a symphony of unified wills who submit to each other in love. We don't have a whole lot of this in the world today. But through the ecclesia, God wants to bring about his kingdom in which the king becomes a servant to meet the needs of the lowly. And God wants to do that through Hamilton Hills. All right, the next quote that we're going to show is long. We're going to read it slowly, but it's really going to help us. Okay, here we go. God is in the process of putting the world right. And he is now recruiting by his spirit through the proclamation of Jesus. People who will join in this project where they have to be put right themselves in order to be part of God's putting, the, putting right movement for the world. And this obviously involves believing. It involves joining and being plunged into the family of Jesus followers. And it involves then inevitably having one's life turned upside down, inside out, by the Holy Spirit working in someone's life. God is recruiting by the Spirit through the proclamation of Jesus those who will participate in new creation. This is the ecclesia. This is what we're called to do. We heard a couple of weeks ago that salvation is so much more than just going to heaven when we die. And what we're beginning to learn is that what God is doing through Jesus and his death is to restore the creation project that he started at the beginning. And you and me get to participate in it. The church just wants your money. Well, I actually have some news for you, Hamilton Hills. Hamilton Hills wants your money. But the reason that Hamilton Hills wants your money is because Hamilton Hills has grasped and understood the mission of God. And I think the more and more we are unified by this, by this idea and unified in this mission, the more we will begin to see Oh my goodness, look at the needs in fishers that we could be a part of, of, of helping with. So often, and I'm guilty of this in my life, we've turned giving into some kind of percentage. And I cut the check at the start of the, week, the month and then I'm done. But what if we had the mindset that God is going to work in and through us to bring about order to the world including Fishers, Indiana, we might have some among us who might lean over to their wife and say, hey, that house on the lake that we don't use and 
Our daughter rents it out on Airbnb and Verbo. What if we, what if we sold that and took the money and, and, and gave it to a, a homeless shelter or gave it to Hamilton Hills or, or used it to, to help a, a, another group in need? You say, Scott, that's, that's kind of crazy. That's pretty radical. It is. But I'm convinced that this is the mission of God. It's that we would view ourselves as special agents of God who are going to restore the broken world. Listen, your neighbor, they might drive a Mercedes, but there's a good chance that they're broken, that they're in need, that they're clinging and holding on to everything they have as a way to be satisfied. I want to do something here at the end of the sermon. I want to read to us a a portion of Paul's letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. And I want to, I want to, I've asked our media guys in the back not to put this on the screen. Um, I want you guys just to kind of relax your brains. We're, We're almost done here this morning. I want you just to relax your brains and just try to listen carefully and enjoy this text. This is what Paul writes. Paul says, now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more and they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. I text Matt on Friday and I said, Matt, I I don't know your church. (laughs) Um, I'm getting to know your church. I'm getting to really fall in love with you guys, but I don't know your church and I don't know your finances. I say, could you, would you mind letting me know? How are you guys doing? How's the generosity? Um, Are you guys struggling right now? Do you have an abundance? Where, where's the church of Hamilton Hills at? And guys, I was blown away. In the last year, 
Hamilton Hills has gone from giving 6% to missions to 16%. That means that 16% of everything that goes in the pot leaves here and you don't benefit from it. 15% of your own vision campaign went to help a church plant in the poorest city in Indiana. You guys partner with nonprofits all over Indianapolis for foster care. And over 20 families were helped with mental health and counseling. I'm not stepping into a church that is stingy. But what I'd like to do is show you guys that the mission is so great. We can do more. My entire life, I've heard pastors get up and ask for more. And so often I sat there in the pew and I had cynicism. I'm just like, Oh yeah, okay. You need to upgrade your vehicle. You need a new boat. And honestly, I think sometimes I've been right on that. I want to I want to take a moment before I sit down. And I'd like to humbly give you guys some advice and I want to pray over you if I can. My my prayer this morning Matt and Denise for you guys is that you would create a culture of transparency here where there's no secrets and where anyone and everyone can know where the money's going. I, I, I want to pray that over you guys. And my prayer for all of us is that God would build a spirit of unity here to where what we have is in ours coming together to meet the needs in Fishers, Indiana. Can I, can I pray that over you this morning? Father God, when we pause for a moment and think about the cross, it's overwhelming. To think that you became a human you bled and died at the hands of the creatures that you made so that we could be restored to your image bearers so that the world could be full of people who are partnering with you by their free will where you're not dragging us you're not commanding us you're not, you're not begging us to give money. You've given everything to us. And now you allow us by our free wills to choose to participate in this project. God, I pray for our staff here at Hamilton Hills. Father, that there would be accountability, that there would be transparency that there would be no financial moves that are made in the dark. And Father, I pray for this ecclesia, 
that we would come together with one mind and heart. That we would be willing to give not just of our excess, but that God, we would even be willing to sell something so that we can participate in the needs of this incredible city. Father, I pray by your spirit that you would do this in our hearts right now. And Father, I I pray for those in the room under the sound of my voice who they, they have not started giving. God, that you would just remove the pressure where they don't feel like they have to run out to the parking lot and sell their car, but that they understand the heart of you as our Father who longs to allow us to participate so that even if they start giving something small, they immediately begin to feel like they're part of the family. God, I just pray this over this house by your spirit in your name. Amen. Hey, can we give Scott a hand? Thank you for coming in. I am, uh, I'm not supposed to be here. I think Denise may have said that while I left the room and I wasn't supposed to be in the first service either. Uh, but um, I am, and I uh, am a rebel, and I like being a rebel. So, hey, can we stand together? As you stand, I want to I leave you with this thought. Um, I, I love team sports. I've just gotten kind of into golf and golf's okay, but there ain't nothing like watching a team uh, do something together. And our elders, when we talked about our vision campaign and we talked about our budget for the next year, man, we we looked at all these different things. And, you know, I think right now our church budget, and this is, you know, we really just share this with our partners, but I think our entire budget is one point. Zero six million or something like that for our entire budget for for the year. So that includes everything that we do, and uh, of course we wanted to move our you know six percent to to twenty percent. We want to get there in a couple of years to where twenty percent of what comes in we just send right back out. Like we don't see it, we don't benefit from it. We just send it right back out, and we're moving towards that in a great way. But the other thing is 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 I don't care about the number. That $1 million is not the number that, by the way, God is even concerned about. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need us to create a bigger budget so we can give more. What he wants is your heart. And he wants you on the team. So when I say this, I mean it's in all sincerity. I would rather have us have a smaller budget and not be able to do as much and, and people that are bigger givers give less, but more people give. Because I'd rather have more people on the team partnering with the mission of God and seeing that go forward. I really, I promise you, I mean that. Our elders mean that. I want to see everybody on the team. Uh, can, I, can I picture it this way? And I'm not going to preach another message. But I want to really bad. But can I put it this way? If you have kids... You know when you, you, you give your little boy that little basketball and you pick him up and you put him, bring him over to the 10-foot rim and you pick him up and let him slam dunk the basketball? And man, he's like, I'm the man! I'm so awesome at sports! 
and he's not. (laughs) What he did wasn't his own. He didn't do it on his own, right? You did all of it. And God does this. He goes, here, I'm going to give you what I created, what I have, my abundance, my glory. I'm going to give it to you to steward. And then I'm going to lift you up and and you can pretend like you're doing things. He does it all. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need big givers. He doesn't need small givers. What he wants is everyone on the team. And so wherever you are in your generosity, maybe you've been hurt by the church. And trust me, I guarantee you, the majority of you in here have probably been hurt by the church because the church is full of people. And sometimes people do bad things and they misuse money. And so the trust level goes down, right? And then we go, ain't giving. I've been there. I get it. I get it. I understand. So I mean this with all my heart. Start somewhere, give 10 bucks, and don't give it to Hamilton Hills. Give it to a different church. That's what your pastor is saying. If that's where it starts for you to feel like you're, because believe it or not, we're not the only church that's part of the kingdom of God. So if you'll give $10 to another church and it furthers the kingdom of God somewhere else, great. I don't care. I just want you on the team because I want to see God's glory go across this globe, all over the global Eden or whatever nerd thing that Scott said. (laughs) Let's get on the team. Let's get excited. And although all of us are just dunking basketballs while God is lifting us up, let's have fun. Man, to be a part of a mission and a movement of God just give a dollar. Just don't give it to the TV evangelist, please. <laughs> Yard is Smith. We'll see you back here next week.